Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. For decades, the story of American photography has almost entirely run through the American West, through Carlton Watkins, Timothy O'Sullivan, Charles Savage, Edward Moybridge, and so on. Their work, especially Watkins's, has helped us understand the story of the completion of America's continental empire, the push to the Pacific, and gave rise to a new relationship with the new landscape. But what about the American East? A new show at the National Gallery of Art, East of the Mississippi, 19th century American landscape photography, provides the first major look at the development of photography in the East, its relationship with the land, business, government, and with American painting. My guest is the show's curator, Diane Wagner, a curator at the National Gallery in Washington. Her show features 175 19th century photographs, including daguerreotypes, salted paper prints, albumen prints, stereographic prints, and crucially, paintings that demonstrate that photographers and painters were engaging with each other's ideas. The exhibition is on view at the National Gallery through July 16th, when it will travel to the New Orleans Museum of Art. The exhibition catalog was published by the National Gallery and Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $46. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Baltimore Museum of Art curator Katie Rothkopf joins me to discuss Richard Diebenkorn's 1964 visit to the Soviet Union in the context of the exhibition Matisse Diebenkorn. The show, which Rothkopf co-curated with San Francisco Museum of Modern Art curator Janet Bishop, is on view at SF MoMA through May 29th. Bishop and I discussed Matisse Diebenkorn at length, basically all but Diebenkorn's engagement with Matisse via the Soviet Union trip, on episode number 266. We'll have a link to that program on manpodcast.com. But first, Diane Wagner, after the break. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Medardo Rosso Experiments in Light and Form, on view now through May 2017. Instrumental in expanding the definition of sculpture for the modern era, Italian artist Medardo Rosso employed innovative casting and modeling techniques in plaster, bronze, and wax, creating surfaces that were sensitive to the transient effects of light and shadow. As seen through nearly 100 works, including sculptures, drawings, and photographs, most of which have never been exhibited outside of Europe, this exhibition explores Rosso's varied efforts to understand, capture, and manipulate light in his art. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. The Modern Art Notes podcast is going back on the road. Ohioans, please join Nancy Rubens and me at the Wexner Center for the Arts on Thursday, April 13th at 4.30 p.m. Rubens is among the artists included in the Wexner's upcoming show, Gray Matters, which is a survey of 37 artists who have explored working on Gray's Eye. After our live audience taping, Nancy Rubens and Sarah Oppenheimer, whose S337473 is on view now at the Wexner, will sign their recent books. We all hope to see you at the Wexner on Thursday, April 13th at 4.30 p.m. (laughs) 
And we're back. Diane Wagner, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Your exhibition is called East of the Mississippi and shows photography from east of the Mississippi during the 19th century. Why is that an important uh, and relevant geographic construct? Well, I think it was very clearly kind of the dividing line between east and west. So as I was conceiving of the show and wanting to look at eastern landscape, it was really the natural boundary to use as the... uh, to distinguish this is the eastern landscape versus the western landscape. And yes, there are things on the western bank of the Mississippi River. I wasn't going to be that pedantic about it. But I think it is sort of a geographic construct that looms sort of large in the American imagination, so it made sense. Is it the construct we now apply when we think of 19th century photography in America, or did it exist as a construct that impacted how photography and Americans and images of America traveled in the 19th century? I think there was a clear sense that the Mississippi River was the major artery there, and certainly there was quite a rich visual culture alongside the Mississippi River, you know, that starts even really before photography. So I felt that it was it may be something that we think of now, but it did feel like it had a 19th century sense to it as well. The three big American cities, when your show starts in the 1840s, let's just say broadly speaking, are Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. There are photographers active in all of them. Do they have distinct cultures for photographers, or are photographers kind of doing the same thing along the Atlantic seaboard regardless of urbanity? I think that there's um, a little bit of difference between the uh, different cities. Philadelphia in particular has its own kind of unique sensibility that's a little bit different than what you see going on in Boston and New York because Philadelphia, you already had sort of through the 1840s and into the 1850s a number of photographers who were kind of actively thinking about the historic fabric of the city in a way I think you don't see as much in New of the York. city itself. Yeah. So, for example, there are the, the works of James McLeese or Frederick de Bourg Richards. This is by the mid to late 1850s. But they're clearly going out and photographing historic structures. And they even advertise their work as meant to be appealing to Philadelphia antiquarians. And they were collected mm-hmm. by antiquarians. And so there's that sort of sense in Philadelphia, I think, that you don't quite get to the same extent in New York and Boston. And there's really an earlier kind of push to start photographing the Philadelphia urban fabric. I think it takes a little bit Mm. longer for it to get started in New York. There just aren't as many early photographs of New York as in Philadelphia. So in the 1840s, are photographers mostly interested in in the city and urbanity, or are they already beginning to head out into the American landscape? No, they're already doing both. I mean, as the show, you know, shows, it's this kind of, the the sort of twin theme that runs throughout the entire show is this nature versus culture, you know, going back to Barbara Novak's term. And you do... Which is a very Eastern term, I might add. True. Barbara Novak doesn't pay any attention attention to to the the West. West. No, no. (laughs) So it, it, it fit. But, and you see that already at the very beginning. I mean, you know, what is someone like Samuel Bemis doing when he's... buys his first daguerreotype camera in 1840. He starts photographing in Boston, and then he goes to the White Mountains at the same time. So he's doing both. He's looking at the urban fabric, and he's seeking out the wilderness sites. You mentioned Bemis. Is he the most interesting early figure in the show? I mean, he kind of looked that way to me, but you've spent more time and seen more of the work. <laughs> well, he's one of the people, you know, he's the person who I think the most survives. I mean, I was quite fascinated uh-huh. by Hugh Lee Pattinson's work as well. You know, he's the first known photographer to uh, photograph Niagara Falls. 
you know, he, he buys a daguerreotype camera and photographs the falls in April of 1840. So just around the same time Bemis is starting. But he didn't produce quite as much work and not quite as much of it survives. You know, Bemis, we know over the period of a couple of years, did 350 daguerreotypes, of which about 40 or so survive now. Again, it's both Boston and, well, the White Mountains. I was obviously a little bit more interested in the White Mountains work for the purpose of this particular show. But he's the first person, I think, who's really over the period of a couple of years doing a serial landscape project, mm-hmm. you know, in photography in America. Bemis, oh, sorry, excuse me, Pattinson doesn't last for very long. He photographs a little bit in New York. He does the Niagara Falls. Then he goes back to Newcastle. And as far as we know, didn't really continue to make uh, daguerreotypes after that point. And then Henry Coit Perkins, too, who's quite interesting, who's a really early adopter, you know, is making the first probably town view from a bird's eye perspective. And is that Providence? In uh, Newburyport, Massachusetts. Oh, Newburyport. And he, too, you know, we know that he probably photographed in 1839, late 1839 and 1840, did not apparently continue with photography. So Bemis is the first one to do a sort of sustained project over the period of a few years. We're going to come back in a minute to the idea of how we today know work that existed then but no longer exists and the role of engravings and all that in in our knowledge. We'll come back to that later. But while we're in the Northeast and in the landscape, Niagara is is very important early American mm-hmm. landscape in in across American culture, the White Mountains too. Yep. Is one of them preeminent in photography? Do photographers go to one more than the other? I think it's pretty, it's pretty seemed even. pretty even to me. I mean, sometimes, you know, we may have more work that survives of one or the other given moment of time, but it was pretty clear that these were two of the major places that were being photographed right away. And as we just said, 1840, there's Pattinson, right. and there's Bemis in both, right. both of those areas, and you continue to see photographers photographing them over the course of the next several decades. So do we have an idea yet, do you have an idea yet, of how important photography was or was not? relative to vis-a-vis painting or literature in creating the national stories or the national mythologies around, or the national metaphors for that matter, around Niagara and the White Mountains? I think that they were very instrumental. As Um, important as painting? Close? Maybe at least even, because, you know, not only do you have these, you know, these early projects that we're talking about, you know, they were not necessarily widely seen, but it's not that long before you start getting these sites being photographed in stereos. And they are, both Niagara Falls and the White Mountains are some of the most commonly photographed landscapes that are sold in the stereo market. You know, and that material was what was reaching the, you know, largest number of the American public. Far more, probably, more people were probably seeing stereograph photographs than necessarily going and seeing churches painting of Niagara in 1857, you know, and I think that that was very, those were very important in disseminating the Mm. landscape among the populace. Is there as much photography going on up the Hudson? I mean, the White Mountains seem to live larger in photographic visual culture of the period, at least through this show. And again, we don't know what hasn't survived um, than than the Catskills or the Adirondacks. Yeah, I mean, it's my sense that it's certainly in the earlier years, you see the White Mountains being more important early on, you know, despite the fact that, yeah, you've got the Hudson River Valley landscape arts. They are 
there. The Hudson River does appear in the first room of the show with the work of Silas Holmes. And we know that Victor Prevost, the French photographer who came to America in the early 1850s, was photographing along the Hudson River. You certainly see West Point becoming a site, you know, with the photographs of George Warren. So it's there. But it's not like up in the Catskills where where the Thomas Coles and Sanford yeah, Giffords I think were you, in the same I, yeah, way. Yeah, I don't see quite the same mm. sort of stereographic series where you know photographers going right to those specific mm. areas as much. Landscape is a big thing in 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 American everything. One of the surprises of the show for me, big surprises, did not did, would not have guessed were house portraits. What the heck are house portraits and why are why are they why are they a thing? How did they become a thing? Well, you know, people wanted their own, you know, portraits of themselves, but they wanted to record their property incidents and that's kind of the vernacular landscape that you see developing and it clearly was something that kept you know, gave some business to daguerreotypists. I mean, most of them, of course, their bread and butter was portraiture, but they were obviously hired occasionally to go out and photograph someone's property, and there are a few examples in the show. And, you know, I think it's same impulse that we would see today to, you know, make that photograph of your of your property. Is it possible in, in kind of the pre-1861 period in the East to distinguish authorship from picture to picture? Did you find, as you worked on the show, that you found little moves that a photographer had or certain compositional strategies that recurred? Yeah, yeah, there definitely Mm -hmm. were some. I think that, for example, Frederick DeBorg Richards was someone who I felt he often photographed, sorry, he often focused on an individual building, but he seemed very interested in kind of recording the sense of the volume of a building within the landscape. And that was, for example, very different than what I felt J. Dearborn Edwards was doing in New Orleans in the late 1850s, where some of his interest was in the commerce of the city, but a lot of it was just much more about the kind of expansion of the neighborhoods and the way that the streets and the buildings were fitting together. And you didn't mm-hmm. quite, I didn't quite see that in what, say, Richards or McLeese was doing in Philadelphia. So it was a different approach to the urban fabric than than the others. So if we if we think about the the Northeast, you know, kind of Philadelphia on up in the 1850s, did you get a sense that there were one or two or three photographers who really stood above their peers, or is it a group with kind of minor shades of gray between them? I think there were a few standouts. Some of them, I guess you might say there's some minor shades of gray, but for example, Thomas Easterly, we haven't talked about him yet, but he was absolutely hands down, you know, the master of the daguerreotype in America. Um, and his, Is he that far in the Northeast at that point? Sorry, I'm, no, I'm sorry. He's, he's in St. He's Louis. He's in St. Louis. He does go to Niagara and yeah. one daguerreotype of Niagara there, and he did photograph in Vermont as well. So, sorry, I'm not... Easterly, Easterly was the stud of the first two-thirds of the show for me, so yeah. I'm a cosine, cosine, big fan. Yeah, I mean, he was just extraordinary, and he was clearly one of the few daguerreotypists who was looking, I think, at landscape painting and sometimes endeavoring to make compositions that mm-hmm. echoed landscape painters. There's that on the one hand, and then there's also just his amazing attention over time to photographing the transformations of St. Louis. You mentioned Easterly and, and painters, and we're going to come to painters in a minute. 
in, in, in researching the show, did you mostly see photographers making pictures of what was around them for sale to a locally focused market? Or do you see many of them as having kind of art-like ambitions where they think their work is going to get, you know, beyond the, uh, the carriage line? I think in the <laughs> earliest years, it is more, as you describe, it's a little bit more locally focused. But then by the late 1850s and early 1860s, you start hmm. to see the photographers who become a lot more aesthetically ambitious. That brings us to the relationship between painting and photography. Yeah. So what drives that aesthetic ambition? I mean, is it seeing painting or are there other reasons they're becoming? Is it, is it differentiation within the photography market? What are the reasons there? I think some of it is the particular photographers who are suddenly taking up photography. I mean, in the 1840s, 1850s, Almost all the photographers that we see started out as daguerreotypists. Easterly's the one who really just continued being a daguerreotypist. But the others, they start out and they with that. So they're really entering photography for the most part because they're seeing a commercial opportunity. Most of them don't have the training as an artist. You know, a lot of them come from scientific backgrounds or, you know, manufacturing backgrounds. So I think, again, photography is this potential business opportunity as much as it is, a, you know, this marvelous new technology and a way to make pictures. So, you know, what they're doing is trying to make a living for themselves. And so a lot of them are doing portraits in the same time that they're doing landscapes. And again, the portraits are really going to be their bread and butter, you know, and that's quite a different development than you see in France in Britain in terms of who's working in the 1840s and 1850s. You know, you don't, yes, you you do have amateur photographers from the very beginning in America, but just not the same kind of flourishing of that sort of gentleman amateur community that you see in Britain, you know, and already starting to work with the paper negative and the salted paper print. You know, in France, you have this whole group of people taking up photography, again, using the paper negative, who trained as artists. But in America, first of all, the daguerreotype dominates, too, which, again, is another reason why it takes a while for landscape to get going, Mm. because the daguerreotype doesn't lend itself to, you know, making these dramatic landscape views, with the exception of the couple of uh, daguerreotype panoramas, you know, with, with the examples, I have a couple of examples of that in the show. So, you know, that really makes the sort of trajectory of landscape photography in America different in those first couple of decades. But then by the 18, late 1850s and 1860s, you have a, a number of people entering the field who are coming from these artistic backgrounds, hmm. such as John Moran, Charles and... Brother well, of Thomas. Brother of Thomas. Charles and Edward Bierstadt aren't... Brother necess- of Albert. <laughs> Brother of Albert. I mean, they actually were woodworkers, so they're not, but they're clearly coming from an art- artistic family. And then you have William James Stillman, who is both a painter and photographer. And was trying to do in photographs what he was doing in paintings, which right. didn't always... Didn't always... Wasn't always that successful, but it's a really interesting project. And to me, that... If I could just fill in one more thing, the same mm-hmm. thing was happening in, in Europe. Roger Fenton comes from painting into photography. So this isn't only an American... True, true. But Fenton gets started around 1850, yeah, a little bit a little earlier. Bit earlier so. But he trained as a painter. Yes. And a lot of the gentlemen amateurs, too, you know, they all they may not have been, you know, actively trained painters, but they had, art, you know, they had artistic, yeah. you know, lessons as part of their sort of general education. And it's just 
for the most part, it's different in America. The couple of exceptions to that in the earlier years are Victor Prevost, who does come from that French background, Frederick de Borg Richards, who is working both as a landscape painter and as a photographer at the same time. But anyway, so it to, to me, it felt like there was that moment in the late 1850s and early 1860s where the approach to the landscape suddenly took a leap forward just in terms of the sophisticated compositions that mm. these photographers were, were doing. Suddenly. Well, I think there was maybe a gradual progression, but I think if you look in the exhibition, if you're moving from the oh, first yeah. room to the second room, where you're moving from the 1840s, 1850s into that moment in of the painting book, photography, you see this real difference in the ap- approach that they're taking to their landscape pictures. And I feel that that's really kind of a moment at which landscape photography as an aesthetic endeavor began to cohere more in America. So in that was East. kind of a pivot yeah in the east. So that's a pivot <laughs> point. And it's it's is it not it's probably not coincidental that's right when Watkins is starting out too. Well, it's it's interesting you 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 raise that. So it, this is as as we get into into the late 1850s and early 1860s the way photography from the west mostly, with one exception, with the exception of one photographer, makes it to the East, is through engravings. It was not technologically possible until the very late 1880s, early 1890s, to reproduce photographs in any meaningful way in print media. So photographs were made into engravings, which were then reproduced in, say, Harper's, as were, like, Winslow Homer's drawings. And, And, of course, a key way we know of photographs that once existed, but are now lost is through these engravings. Yes. Do you see that having an impact on the East Coast in the 1850s? Do, do we see maybe that because engravings are spreading the reach of pictures made in Philadelphia and allowing them to be known of up in Boston or seen up in Boston, do we see that either spreading the thing, photography, or beginning to have an impact on the aesthetics of the thing and how photographers make and build works? I mean, I think it it probably did. You know, it's not that we sort of have a moment where, you know, any photographer actually writes about this and you right. can say that's true. But, or that it survives. Right. But you do, for example, if you read the journals from the, you know, the Photographic and Fine Art Journal in the 1850s, Humphreys Magazine, you do see those editors are constantly writing these, you know, their editorials urging photographers that they need to improve their visual taste, they need to improve their artistic training. There's a need for them to become better at at what they're doing. And even the Photographic and Fine Art Journal is publishing at the same time. Maybe it's called the Photographic and Fine Art Journal. So they're purposefully uh, publishing articles about art at the same time that they're publishing their, you know, their sort of technical articles, their whatever, their uh, discussions of uh, photographs on view and in exhibitions and that sort of thing. And, and, And the clear purpose of doing that is that they are trying to educate the photography community. You see the same thing in the 1850s in, in the art journal coming over from London, right. where they are talking about photography in the context of painting as being truer than painting, as being able to show detail and individual tree species in a way that right. painting cannot. I mean, you can see very acutely what matters to to London art slash photography slash chemistry, in right. some cases, editors. And um, a lot of that's coming over. They, I mean, a lot of the American photography journals are reprinting articles yeah, from the are. British Even photography journals, too. Yes. So, you know, all of that's kind of in the mix um, yeah. together. You note in the catalog, and as we've been talking here, 
that, and, and in the show, it's in the galleries, there are paintings in the galleries, that a number of Eastern photographers seem to have been consciously engaging painting. Are they mostly engaging it through, and, and certainly by 1861 that was happening in the West. Were they engaging painting mostly in their presentation of depth or with their chosen viewpoints and subjects, or were they working on specific paintings? Were they really riffing on that? I don't think it was necessarily that they were riffing on specific paintings. It, it seemed to more be a kind of give and take be- between them. So what's the give and take that's happening? What are, what, well, I mean, we if you it? think about Thomas Moran and John Moran, they're out in around the environs of Pennsylvania together in the early 1860s. And, you know, they John photographs the Wissahickon Creek. Thomas makes paintings of it, but they aren't necessarily the same compositions. There is that one moment, and I reproduce it in the catalog, where they're out along the Pennsylvania Railroad, and there is a photograph by Moran that is very similar to one that ended up as an engraving in an article about the about the landscape by Thomas. And, you know, there those sort of little picturesque details that get added where I think there's a boat or something else that gets added that's not in the actual photograph. You know, and they it, it's not clear whether they were there side by side, one of them's making the mm. photograph, one of them sketching it, or whether, you know, Tom, John made the photograph first and then Thomas made the, the drawing after it. So, you know, there are a few little moments like that, but, you know, most of it, there's not necessarily a one-to-one correspondence. I mean, the Bierstadt painting of the Mountain Brook, you know, he makes that three years after their excursion into the White Mountains in 1860, where they're, where there's a notice in the crayon about how the three brothers are in the um, White Mountains at the same time, and they're making these large prints, and that Albert is the one choosing the points of view. Even on the mount, though, on the mounts, it says Charles, you know, it says Bierstadt Brothers, which means Charles and Edward. Charles and Edward were the photographers, and they were sometimes in business together. Right. Because there were one or two times in the show I thought I did see direct relationships. So let me run one of them by you. Mm -hmm. George Kendall Warren made a picture of East Rock outside New Haven. You know where I'm going. And there's a famous Frederick Edwin Church Mm -hmm. painting of West Rock outside New Haven. And there's, and and in the foreground of the Frederick Edwin, we'll have images of both of these on manpodcast.com. But in the foreground of, of Church's painting, there's haying going on. Mm-hmm. And what is happening or has just happened in the, for, in, in, in the foreground of the George Kendall Warren picture? Haying. haying. yes. Is there, do you think? I mean, I certainly obviously noticed the similarity as well when I was working on the project. I just don't know. I mean, Warren gets started in the late 1850s. Church's painting is 1849, I believe. Prince later. But it seems, you know, very likely that he may have seen it or have seen prints of it. I mean, I think that one could also imagine approaching that landscape and coming to the same point of view, too. It doesn't necessarily mean that he had seen it and wanted to recreate that. I mean, Warren did have a particular aesthetic sensibility where, you know, his photographs often focus on a central element. They're quite extraordinary for that. You know, it's either that or he's focusing on these very graphic uh, patterns of shadows and other kinds of lines. He's making serious aesthetic choices. I mean, that's really clear in the show. Yes, he he definitely is. And he's definitely doing it to, I think, appeal to his particular customer base, um, you know, which are these young men who are graduated from the colleges who are, you know, 
at this point, probably getting some kind of education in art, certainly in West Point. They may have had scientific training, but they also were getting an artistic education. So I, I think he was working in a way to try to appeal to the people who he wanted to buy his photographs uh, deliberately. So while we're talking about painting and photography and the relationship, the overwhelming majority of your show is installed on walls. There are a couple of cases, albums, and such. Right. But, but these are pictures, these are photographs, and paintings on walls. Certainly by your last gallery, the last image in the show is from 1898. Mm-hmm. Photographers were doing that. That was a common practice. How much do we know, how much do you know, about whether photographers in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s in the East were hanging their work on walls, selling their work off of walls as opposed to selling it out of cases? I think they were. I mean, there is already, from the very beginning, many exhibitions that are organized. On walls. I think they they were yeah. often on walls. I mean, it's, again, a different trajectory than you see happening in France and Britain, to go back to that, where you know, in France and Britain, you had clearly the annual exhibitions of the Photographic Society of London, the Société Française de Photographie. You didn't quite have that in America quite right at the beginning. You tended to get photographs displayed in mechanics institutes, but places like the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, the American Institute in New York. So the kind of de- more dedicated photography exhibition comes a little bit later. But for example, by 1876, with the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, there is a dedicated photography hall where I believe albums were shown, but but so were works on, on the walls. And I think also a number of the photographers sometimes probably made these things, these kinds of photographs to frame on their studio walls to sort of advertise their their skills. So it's a mix. I mean, yes, I think a lot of these photographs would have been experienced in albums or experienced in portfolios. And there are certainly cases where the things that are framed on the wall I know came out of portfolios or came out of albums. In part because that's how stuff seems to have best survived often. If it was bound, it went into libraries and thus survived. Exactly. And then sometimes, you know, things were disbound and sold into the secondary market. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily, right, it was not necessarily that I was trying to, you know, find these things. They were already that way when when I came to them, such as the Henry Peter Bossy cyanotypes. Those had all, were all originally- those were originally part of an album. The James F. Ryder were originally part of an album. And one of the albums does does survive intact. There were two. But then there are others where they were clearly sold together as a portfolio, but were not necessarily bound, such as the Thomas H. Johnson works, the Stillman, the um, Adirondack portfolio was not, it had a cover, but it wasn't, the photographs weren't bound together. So they were clearly meant to be taken out and looked at one by one. So one of the neat parts of the show, as we talked about, was the relationship between photography and painting. There are a number of panorama, photographic panoramas, multiple photographs making up a single view in the show. Do you think that photographers are interested in panoramas because, especially given lenses, which were somewhat limited at the time, it enabled them to visually compete or totally not related? No, I think it did make them Mm. um, able to visually compete. And I think that it was when a photographer chose to make a panorama they were doing it as a, a, ambitious, a statement of ambition. I mean, certainly those daguerreotype panoramas were, they were not made, you know, to just sort of sell to some random customer. Those were made to either put in an exhibition or to be exhibited in their studio as a way to advertise their skill. And, you know, for example, we know that the Langenheim Niagara panorama, they sent copies of it, or they 
Daguerre himself, Queen Victoria, um, and so on. They also sent a panorama to the 1851 Great Ex. Exhibition, not that particular Niagara Falls daguerreotype one, but they sent a paper panorama of um, Philadelphia, which, as far as I know, does not survive. You know, I think it was their way of, to some extent, competing with what a painter might be able to do. You know, by using whatever the you know technological means of photography at the time. So, is the Langenheim panorama of of Niagara Falls, which appears to be in its original frame, is that the original it's, frame? Is that how we would have seen original, it? We'll have an image of the whole presentation on the website, but is that? It's the original mount, absolutely. Oh wow! The, the frame itself is different, is, but the is, mount is later. And the go same to manpodcast.com and you'll see why this is of visual and presentational interest. There are these kind of Doric columns and this railing, and it's quite a. <laughs> Right. I mean, you're thing. clearly meant to be, you know, it's as if you are on a viewing platform yeah. looking at Niagara Falls yourself. And this, you see the same thing with the way that the Fairmount Waterworks panorama um, by W.S. Porter is is mounted, too. And there, there, were, there were other cases of these kind of daguerreotype panoramas, too. There's a very well-known one of Cincinnati. Yeah, um, yeah. Early Western photography, that, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's east of the Mississippi, but it was, right. yeah. Right. And then, you know... Towards by the end of the century, you see people like William Rao, who's doing his series of mammoth plates of the Pennsylvania Railroad and Lehigh Valley Railroad, but he's also using film negatives to make panoramic prints, too. And then, you know, William Henry Jackson, too, when he's photographing on the Eastern Railroads, does both his mammoth plates and the, he, does, he combines two mammoth plates together to make a panoramic view. We're, we're coming to them in a moment, but I don't want to skip the Civil War. This relationship between... Photography and the Civil War is famous for two reasons, Antietam and and the theater just south of that and the Brady Studio, but also because so many Civil War photographers, Savage, O'Sullivan, and on and on, go west. west. Do we see photographers of the Civil War who don't go west and who stay in the east, staying and making pictures in the east? Does the Civil War have as much impact on eastern photography as it does on western photography? I think that it does, but actually, if anything, I would almost argue that other Eastern photography had an impact on the Civil War oh, photography okay. that we haven't really, that at least I hope gets brought out a little bit more clearly in this exhibition. Mm-hmm. I, I, to me, the Civil War is sort of the pivot point, you know, in terms of when you walk through the show. But if you, but leading up to that, you've already seen a number of photographs that are made in the middle of the Civil War. We've already talked about the painting and photography room. But, you know, those Morans, 1863, they're made right in the middle of the war. And Moran himself also made some Civil War-related photographs where there's a little series that he did of the Philadelphia Military Hospital, which is in oh, the, right. the Civil War Those section. are really good pictures. Yeah. They're those really, are unusually good pictures. They're really a, in, an interesting set of pictures. And Particular you know, point of view, he would have had to hike up buildings with gear. Yes, he's taking it from the observation point and, you know, the that military hospital was famous, I guess, for its uh, centrifugal uh, pattern that it was built in, and that was thought to um, help prevent the spread of infection. And you clearly feel like Moran is going up to the top of this, you know, observation point and making these sort of panoptic photographs to give a sense of that structure. But anyway. include the building in the foreground as if to underscore that. Exactly. But anyway, and then you also have, you know, James F. Ryder is doing the first commission for a large-scale commission for a railroad in 1862. Thomas H. Johnson is going to Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1863, and he's photographing you know, the anthracite coal regions of northeastern Pennsylvania. So, so all of that material is getting made right around the same time that the Civil War f- uh, photographers are working. I mean, Russell doesn't start 
photographing until 1863 himself too. So, you know, you see not only the sort of new approach to the landscape from an aesthetic point of view, but you also see the rise of this genre of industrial and railroad views already starting in the early 1860s. And so, you know, which feeds into America's first industrial war, just to complete the circle. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you have these Civil War photographers like Russell, like O'Sullivan, who are turning, you know, these images of, you know, this dramatic construction and deconstruction that's going on in the Civil War into these beautiful pictures. At the same time, they're also sort of you know, documenting it. But we're already seeing that happen, you know, in other fields in the middle of the Civil War in other areas. So I feel, I I hope that this show kind of gives a different context for the Civil War material that it it hadn't really been seen in, because it's, you know, that material has certainly been mined quite a bit, a number of exhibitions, many books written on the subject, but it's always been seen in isolation. Yeah, there are a lot of parts of the show that, I mean, there are shows that launch a thousand PhD dissertations, and this is, or should be one of them. I mean, yes, I, I see this show as just, you know, it's a, it's a starting point. Right. Um, there's much to be done from this point onward, and, you know, many of these photographers deserve their own shows, and so on. Well, speaking of photographers who, who deserve their own shows, I've been neglecting the 1870s and 1880s, and I'm totally ignoring the 1890s. Who from that period are photographers um, that you think we should be paying more attention to? Because we're getting into, you know, by the 70s and 80s, we're getting into a period where more survives. Are there picture makers from that period that you think deserve or are getting near the deserving point, kind of retrospective level attention? Yeah, and I think they're, you know, (laughs) the photographers that I mostly included in the, the show. I mean... Henry Peter Bossy, William Rao, Seneca Ray Stoddard, Henry Hamilton Bennett, you know, all are fascinating photographers. George Barker. Some of them have had shows focused on them. Uh, Bossy had one in Minneapolis um, a while ago. And there are a couple of monographs written on him. Uh, there's a monograph written on William Rao. And he had, there was a show at MoMA, I think, in the 1980s focused mm-hmm. on, on Rao's work. You know, Seneca Ray Stoddard has been, you know, a lot of his work is concentrated in terms of where the collections are in the Adirondack Museum and the Chapman Historical Museum. You know, and they they have paid a lot of attention to them. So a lot of these photographers have had more regional reputations, I think. This is true of photography um, across America for yeah. the late 19th century, where the work ends up in small places right. with limited capacity. It ends up in capacity. one or two collections. And then, you yeah. know, of course, the, a lot of attention gets paid to them. But yes, I think that a number of those photographers are do for for more attention. Their their work is a lot more interesting than they have been given credit for. So let me raise a couple of them and ask you a little bit about each of them. George Barker works in both the North and the South, and I and, and I mean the South, capital S South. The, the show is overwhelmingly Northern, as is American landscape art of the 19th century, regardless of medium. Barker works in both North and South. How common was that for a photographer to work in both regions, and what should we take from it that he did? I think some photographers like Barker did go to multiple places. Clearly others focused specifically on areas, became very associated with the specific areas. So it's it's a bit of a mix. You know, I think most of them probably concentrated in specific regions. So what does it mean that Barker got so far away from home, if you will? Well, I think Barker was actually quite ambitious uh, to make a name for himself. I mean, he was sending his work to be exhibited in you know, various exhibitions. Mm. He was trying to get attention from in the uh, photography journals. I mean, his work gets actively compared to Western photography by a number of the editors. Mm. Um, So, 
you know, I think that it's that's a marker of of him and his particular ambition, even though he he was primarily based in in Niagara Falls. Seneca Ray Stoddard also really stands out as having a particular idea of how a picture should look yeah. and be built, built both side to side, but also front to back. Maybe the most technically accomplished photographer of that period in the show. What should we know about him and and you include quite a number of, of his works. So why so many? What about uh, well, him worked for you? <laughs> well, I think it's about exactly what you said. I mean, he was one of the most interesting photographers, both in terms of his relationship to the landscape he was photographing, but also just in terms of what he was doing aesthetically. And he, too, like Barker, I think was ambitious to make a name for himself as an artist, even though he was in the Adirondacks, clearly wanted to make a living out of being a, a photographer and you know, was very actively promoting the Adirondacks as an area, you know, to become a tourist destination. But he too was sending his work off to be exhibited. He gets written up in the photography journals. So, you know, he was working on a number of different levels at, at the same time. Almost all of the show is is northern, north of, you know, the Rappahannock River or something, and probably even more north of the Potomac, if you exude, exclude the Civil War stuff. Um, there are a couple of stereos of a- Asheville by Rufus. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Rufus Morgan. Morgan, Rufus Morgan. And there's not too much else in the South, whether we're talking about 1840 or 1859 or 1877. This is true in American painting, too. I understand why there's no photography of the South during the Civil War. Materials just weren't available. Right. Did you find yourself thinking about why the region, uh, the South, didn't support or have as vibrant a photographic community as the North or the Midwest or the Western New York? Yeah, yeah, I did. I mean, I, I looked. I tried to find yeah. more work in the South. And, you know, what I, I found was much more just in the stereo market, I think, than um, in, you know, you mentioned the Rufus The Rufus Morgans Morgan, are stereos, and There are a yeah. few other stereos of the South. And, you know, I think because the South prior to the Civil War was obviously a more agrarian economy, just didn't wasn't able to support the same kind of... Um, you mean financially or geographically? Probably probably both. Both. I mean, I'm sh- there were clearly portraiture studios down in mm-hmm. southern cities, but I think it just didn't flourish it early on. But that's not to say it didn't, you know, flourish, say, in New Orleans. I mean, there's already photography studios, I think, you know, were people working in uh, photography in New Orleans in 1840. French influence, maybe. Yeah. And, you know, and again, along the Mississippi River, there's quite a lot. I mean, there are accounts of early daguerreotypes, you know, with these daguerreotype boats going up and down the Mississippi River. So you do see it out there from the very beginning, but just didn't flourish in the South in the same way. I think it's a it favorite is, puzzle yeah, of mine. I, why? Yeah, I don't think that I have the you know. Not sure anybody does the yeah. complete answer to that. I, I don't think, think anyone does. Um, so you know, the, the first great series of photographs of the South is George Barnard when he's following Sherman's campaign to the sea. Definitely not a Southern series about the South. <laughs> <laughs> the show ends with Steichen and Stieglitz and pictorialism in the East, but there's also a bunch of William Henry Jackson there, and they're really big pictures. They are the biggest pictures in the show. They are um, made by a guy, or at least his company, who has experience as a painter and working with and traveling with painters. Is he kind of, uh, along with Stieglitz and Steichen and the turn toward, toward pictorialism, an example of how photography was 
again, thinking about painting and scale and size and and competing and engaging with it. Yeah, I think he was. And I think you, you just kind of explained it. I mean, visually, that argument gets made in the show just by the sheer size of his work. I would also say that that's kind of true of William H. Rao, that, yeah. you know, his photographs, too, I mean, they're very ambitious, not only in size, but just in terms of what he's trying to accomplish aesthetically. And if, if anything, I see more of that kind of, you know, photography going in different directions between Rao and Stieglitz. And my catalog essay, I talk about how Rao is exhibiting in the photographic salons at the end of the century, right at the time that Stieglitz is starting to exhibit and make a reputation for himself, right when all these other pictorialists are, are coming. And there's Stieglitz actually talks about one of the Rao pictures, who sort of damns him with a little bit of faint praise, you know, in in the late 1890s. And it's one of his Pennsylvania Railroad images that Rao is exhibiting, you know, and he, he talks about how it's technically great. And, you know, you might call it a, a, I don't remember the exact words, but you might call it a good picture or something like that, you know, Stieglitz says. And Rao, I think, ended his life in impoverished and just about every just 19th like, century like so American many, artist and photographer like did. Many of them, <laughs> like many of them did. And, you know, he's kind of that to me, he's sort of the end point of that 19th century aesthetic that's marrying the kind of you know, wilderness and industrialization, that kind of optimistic view of uh, the march of progress in America. And it's, you know, just at the moment when Stieglitz is starting out and you see him moving into that Or Andrew in California. Yeah. Right. And he's moving into that 20th century direction. Diane Wagner, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. The Getty invites you to explore its first online-only exhibition, The Legacy of Ancient Palmyra. War in Syria has irrevocably changed the ancient city of Palmyra, once a bustling center of culture and trade. For centuries, traveling artists and explorers have documented the site in former states of preservation. This online exhibition captures Palmyra as it was photographed for the first time by Louis Veen in 1864 and illustrated in the 18th century by the architect Louis-Francois Cassas. Explore this ancient site at getty.edu slash palmyra. The exhibition Unfinished Conversations, new work from the collection, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. See works by artists from around the world, from Cairo to St. Petersburg and from The Hague to Recife, art that reflects on today's events and issues, exploring themes of social protest, the effect of history on the formation of identity, and how art juxtaposes fact and fiction. Visit MoMA.org for more information and tickets, and plan your visit today. Welcome back. My next guest is Baltimore Museum of Art curator Katie Rothkopf. She joins me to discuss Richard Diebenkorn's 1964 visit to the Soviet Union in the context of the exhibition Matisse Diebenkorn, which she co-curated with SF MoMA curator Janet Bishop. Diebenkorn's 1964 trip was the subject of her catalog essay. The show is on view at SF MoMA through May 29th. Katie Rothkopf, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. In 1963, before going to the Soviet Union in 1964, Richard Diebenkorn is painting, among other things, urban landscapes such as the Great Cityscape at SF MoMA and Ingleside, which is at the Grand Rapids Art Museum, both of which are in the exhibition. In 1964, Diebenkorn has the opportunity, rare for the time and, and, and political 
history, the chance to go to the Soviet Union. How and why does that happen? Well, he was invited by the State Department to participate in this cultural exchange. It was, as you say, a very rare experience, a rare opportunity. The exchange had started the year before in 63, and as I recall, they had exchanged, uh, writers had been exchanged between our two countries. And the State Department was looking for someone to send. They were interested in someone who painted in a representational style because the Soviets were not so interested in abstraction at that time. And and so Diebenkorn was chosen and and accepted the opportunity uh, for a variety of reasons. Reasons such as? Reasons such as, I think, his biggest reason. I think I think he considered it an honor. I think it gave him an opportunity to see paintings in other places. You know, they had not, he and his wife had never been to, to Paris. Um, and certainly they had never or, or anywhere been or in anywhere Europe, in yeah. Europe. So it was an opportunity to see things that he had only seen in books and, and read about. And he really took full advantage of the opportunity. He did a number of things in the Soviet Union, including meeting with artists and, 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 and talking with other painters. What do we know about what he saw in the Soviet Union, particularly in terms of Matisse? Well, I was very lucky. I was able to interview uh, William Lewers, who was the uh, junior diplomat who was in Russia, stationed in Moscow, who served as the tour guide and an escort for Diebenkorn and his wife, Phyllis, uh, during their time there. Uh, he's, in a man, he's a man in his 80s, lives in New York, uh, and went on to be an ambassador and, in fact, was also president of the Metropolitan Museum of Art at some point. And he remembers the trip really, really well. We had a a wonderful conversation, and he recalls that they were only able to go, you know, even though Diebenkorn was in the country for several weeks, they were only able to go to the Pushkin Museum twice and the Hermitage once, which after all of that effort seems like a really short, short uh, amount of time to look at at the paintings. We know, uh, it's funny, I, I just saw Bill last week in San Francisco, and he reiterated to me, uh, how for Diebenkorn, particularly the visit to the Hermitage was particularly stressful. They arrived on the day that uh, Khrushchev was ousted, or at least it was in the newspaper that he was ousted. And so when they got there, uh, they were sitting in the office of the, of the director of the museum, and all the director wanted to do was talk to, to William Lewers about the political situation, and all Richard Diebenkorn wanted to do was uh, to get into the galleries. And so he was really worried that he wasn't going to be able to go and see these paintings he'd been dreaming about. And what's so amazing is to look back at books like the bar book that Diebenkorn bought in the 50s, and to see how many paintings are reproduced in there from Russia that he would have known uh, from, from, you know, from, you know, at least a decade previous. And black and white. And black and white mostly, exactly. And what it must have been like, I mean, the amazing color. And even though, as he wrote, he was interviewed later about how, you know, some of the paintings weren't in terrific shape, they weren't all on view, he had to go up to um, conservation and uh, to see the Moroccan Cafe, but it was such an opportunity, and, and you know, there's no doubt that that's one of the main reasons he took the trip. There's a, a great tidbit in your catalog essay about how when uh, Diebenkorn is in the conservation studio looking at the Moroccan Cafe, the 1913 painting, that bar had listed as being, I think, an oil painting, presumably. And Matisse noticed immediately, I'm sorry, Diebenkorn noticed immediately that it wasn't, and the conservator asks him, any ideas on what we ought to do about this? <laughs> He's like, God, please don't give me that responsibility. I know, right? (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it must have just been incredible. And, you know, and, and I don't know that the, you know, the museum was not in terrific shape. The paintings obviously needed some, some care and love. And it took, I think, several years for that painting to really get conserved properly and to be exhibitable again. How does Deben Korn respond to the Russia visit in his work? There are paintings and drawings in the years after, and one might be able to argue that his responses are different depending on the medium? I think one can certainly say that the painting that is the clearest homage to Matisse for for Diebenkorn, uh, particularly during his trip to Russia, was Recollections of a Visit to Leningrad, uh, painted in 1965, just just after he returned. It's it's the one which really takes so many of of the things we recognize from Matisse's bag of tricks. You know, we've have the view through the window. We've got the structure of the composition. We've got the wonderful decorative wallpaper. Uh, and I think it's, it's a painting that Diebenkorn certainly recognized as being one that was very close to Matisse's example, but of course with his own wonderful style, scale, um, and brushwork. The, the Matisse that you're talking about, of course, is Matisse's Red Room, Harmony in Red from 1908, which is in St. Petersburg. One of the things in Red Room that it seems to me that Diebenkorn most took from the trip was Matisse's use of textiles and patterning and how Matisse used it to not just flatten, but kind of eviscerate space. What did you notice working on the show about how, about some of the ways in which Diebenkorn picked up on on, on how Matisse was playing with textiles and then using them in space? Well, I think what they're, they certainly were very different. I think for Matisse, there was never enough color and pattern and texture, and he would layer them on top of each other. And there are wonderful things in the cone collection, wonderful things in the show, such as you know our interior with flowers and parakeets, for example, when there are so many layers and patterns on top of each other. I think for Diebenkorn, he was much more careful with his choices. They sometimes were from what happened to be around the studio, what happened to be around the house. When I was in San Francisco last week, for example, someone mentioned that the pattern that we see in Recollections of a Visit to Leningrad was probably from a tablecloth that that they had at home. He's taken the Matissean idea for using the flowered wallpaper, but certainly made it his own by using his own tablecloth or his own textile to, to give it his own spin. So it both combines the memory of the trip to Matisse and the memory of seeing that painting in real life, but bringing in some of Diebenkorn's own own object uh, own object into into the canvas. Diebenkorn riffs on that uh, textile pattern in an, in a more abstract way in a painting such as Large Still Life at MoMA. In drawings, he's also after getting home playing with textiles. It's not in the show, but there's a, a, a 1966 Diebenkorn drawing called Shoes that. It used to be in the family collection, may still be, that plays with placing objects on, on a highly decorative textile and seeing how those objects hold up, play out, stand out, recede. So it's an idea that it seems occupied him right. on paper, Yeah, there's too. no question about it. And I think, and from when he gets back from that trip, I also feel that his figurative paintings take on this sort of bold, very expressive really beautiful charcoals really come after that trip that I think move him, you know, out of out of that Matissean moment until into the next stage in his career. Those charcoals are part of a series of works he makes after that trip that are heavily 
heavily worked, hard won, scrape and build, build and scrape. Deben Corn had never been a one-pass painter. Is he is he building and scraping and scumbling and physically working surfaces, be they paper or canvas, more, do you think, think after so. the trip? I think so. I mean, I think you start to see things. You know, you can always see that there's pentimenti underneath, and, and there are a few, you know, a few photos that we know. For example, Sleeping Woman, we know from an archival photo that, you know, it had a, a previous life as something else. But I think after the trip to Russia, things get more deep and more layered, and you do start to see things coming up that, that seem like more drastic changes than, than there were from before. You know, we noticed, for example, the Stanford painting of Window from 1967. One can see a pair of his glasses. Demon Quinn's glasses appear in the middle of the composition underneath layers of paint so that at one point maybe it was once a still life. A painting closely related to large still life of 66 and to recollections of a visit to Leningrad, the Stanford painting, which is always on view at Stanford but is still somehow not as well known as it should be. It's one of the greats. We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com, mentioning the, the pentimenti and the, and the multi-layered working of, of a canvas. If there's something that makes it out of Russia into the Ocean Park series, that's got to be the number oh, one yeah, thing, Oh, yeah, definitely. Right? I think so, without, without, a, without a doubt. One of the things Diebenkorn would have seen in, in Russia, especially at the Hermitage, is paintings of figures on flat, single-color backgrounds. There are probably more Matisse paintings that fit that description in Russia than there are anywhere else in the world. I'm thinking of paintings like Nymph and Seder, which is two figures, of course, to a couple of portraits of Madame Lydia later in Matisse's career, to Woman in Green from 1909, to, to, to the Moroccan Coffee House painting we were talking about earlier. Do those flat backgrounds have, those flat single color backgrounds have an impact on Deben I think so. I think particularly those, you know, the, the paintings of 66 and 67, I, I sort of start to see that becoming a way that he can foreground perhaps some of the figures that, that appear in those paintings. Another thing he sees at about this time are uh, 10 cutouts in the Matisse retrospective that touches down at UCLA. It seems to me that seated figure with a hat, the the great late figurative painting at the National Gallery of Art and in the show almost kind of mashes up those two things, cutouts and, and single flat planes of color. Yeah, I think that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. I mean, I think, you know, we were so lucky to be able to include the yellow collage, which is also a portrait of, of his wife, in uh, our venue of the show. And I think, you know, he, he made collage, of course, on occasion throughout his career, but I think that one really stands out to me as one that looks back to Russia, it looks back a little bit to that, you know, incredible pose of the painting in, of Madame Matisse that he saw on his trip to the Soviet Union, you know, where she sort of has that kind of mask and she's staring out at you and you can sort of get a sense of that in that painting and, and certainly in the way that he turns the figure in the seated, the seated woman um, from the National Gallery, also looking back to the conversation that he saw in the Soviet Union, another painting that Bill Lewers pointed out to me as one that he thinks was really important to, to uh, Corn when he saw it for the first time. So the conversation is one of the most psychologically loaded of all Matisse's paintings. It's it's dated 1908 to 1912. I don't that's a, that's a dating that's been around forever. I imagine that there's room for debate about that date in the future. It's the it's the famous painting um, of Henri and his wife Amelie uh, inside blue background garden visible through the window and the arabesque spells out the word no. 
Where do you think the conversation migrates into well, Deep and Corn's work? In that those those late figurative paintings, uh, particularly the seated woman with hat from the National Gallery, uh, the portrait of of Phyllis, obscured, of course, with the big hat. But I think that turn and that sort of sense of sort of majesty and formality that you see in in the Diebenkorn, you see, you know, in the right side portion of the conversation a bit, that you get, you know, isolating the figure, that strong sense of color. I just, I just see those pictures as having some sort of a, a, a relationship, you know, of course, you know, by the time he painted the portrait of his wife, it had been several years, he had seen the show in 66 in between. I think it's so interesting to look through the catalog for the show in 66 to see what was available, what he did, was able to see, of course. It's so great to be able to have those opportunities to look back at, you know, when we think these interactions took place. But but I think the conversation is, is one that was, was important to him, um, in addition to Harmony in Red and some of the other more decorative works that, that we've already talked about. The conversation, as I mentioned a moment ago, is on a blue background. Diebenkorn in 1966 makes what, you know, for me is is, is maybe his greatest figurative painting, um, Nude on a Blue Ground of, of 66. Painting, I think, has and, and, and have written about as having a lot to do with Blue Nude and, and Picasso's Les Demoiselles. Do you think Nude on a Blue Ground is referring back to the conversation? I, I, yeah, I mean, I certainly, or I mean, I think that's not and a also the, the portrait of Madame Matisse, which is illustrated, I think, in my essay, also very blue, also very frontal, but she's not standing, certainly. Uh, but I think that that sense of the blue, and as you said, the, the singular figure on a bright color, I think that is something that he certainly got from that trip. And, you know, I don't know how many other works from, from the 66 show would have played as strong a role as, as this incredibly intense experience of seeing the works in Russia. And finally, Matisse's paintings of women, you know, Matisse is really fond of putting women in chairs and then making the chairs a part of the painting. Uh, Willem de Kooning, who was a lodestar of Diebenkorn's himself, noticed this. And when de Kooning starts painting his his series of women in the early 1950s, puts them all in yellow chairs, just, just as he'd seen Matisse do. Do you think Diebenkorn is, is also paying attention to the chair thing? I mean, he certainly would have known that Diebenkorn had noticed. Is, 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 is he riffing on, oh, is I he making so. that reference I, you to? You know, I think the chair provides all sorts of interesting structure and, and makes it a little bit more complicated and a little more interesting. You know, Diebenkorn loved, you know, he, he surrounded himself with certain chairs that you see appearing over and over again in these paintings, whether it's the cane chair or the folding chair, the wooden chair. So it, it does, it, it references back to what is the reality of the studio, we know that you know in many of these 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 in Diebenkorn's figurative works these are not there aren't necessarily models sitting in these chairs in in reality he's sort of it's all from his imagination but the chair sort of anchors it to the place where he's actually making the work of art perhaps the construct of the studio was really important to both of them Katie Rothkopf thanks so much for talking with me oh it's, my, it's been my pleasure thank you that's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.